This morning we're going to be in Psalm 121. It'll be on the screen. We're going to read through that together. Then ask God to bless his word and then we'll dive in. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Pray with me. Father, it's so good to know uh, that you don't need to work 40 hours a week and clock, clock out and take a vacation from us, uh, Father, but uh, you are ever-present. You are always with us, and there's no plan B with you. You know the, the hairs of our head. You know the steps that we take. You know the length of our days, and, and Father, you're with us, and you comfort us, and you're here with us through the good and the bad. Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to see that we are needy? Would you help us to see that? Uh, would it uh, would, would it not be for your loving and caring hand that we would absolutely implode? Father, help us to praise you through this psalm. May it be a constant reminder of your goodness and love to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you. When was the last time you had a very restful vacation? I mean a really restful vacation. Not the obligatory summer vacation where you just watch your kids in a more expensive location to then just be ready to get home by like Tuesday night. I'm talking about your kids, if you have them, they're with the most capable, most loving child care ever. Where you can go to an all-inclusive resort where you can eat what you want, drink what you want, do what you want, go on all the excursions, and just have an absolute wonderful time. When's the last time you've done that? And as you think about that, I want you to, to think about why are those type of vacations the ones that are so enjoyable? Why are those the vacations where we save up for maybe a year or two years to go on these things. I suggest this because it's a little shot of a heaven where we have no diapers, no drama, no schedules, no nothing, where we can just do what we want to when we want to, and we know that everything's out of our control in the best way possible. Nothing's dependent upon us. Tourism is so so booming, we live in a tourist destination. I want to share some, some statistics with you. The United Nations Environmental Program estimates that vacations and tourism is a $2.3 trillion industry. Now, that makes up of one in every 10 jobs worldwide has something to do with tourism and vacation. I've got a point about this. But I want us to see what could you buy with $2.3 trillion dollars. Now, the average car costs about $25,000. With $2.3 trillion, you could buy 84,000 new cars. With this type of money, you could pay for a teacher's salary, for uh, a year's salary for 32 million teachers. Not only that, with $2.3 trillion, you could have $2 million of spending money every day for nearly 3,000 years. Now, what's the point of all this? Tourism and vacations are a lot of fun. We look forward to them. 
But if we're not careful, tourism can affect our lives in a way with our sin that when we go through difficult times, that tourist mindset can infiltrate how we view God, how we can view the Bible, and how we can view our circumstances. We want to make sure that when we read texts like this that talk about our Christian experience, we're not inundated by thinking Christianity is this quick fix that as soon as you become a Christian, you're going to have the most joyous, beautiful life where you're holding hands with everybody in the church and you're singing kumbaya until Jesus returns. If you've been a Christian for maybe even a day or a week, you realize that the Christian life is hard. There's a lot of pressure. You feel the weight of your sin. You see what's going on around us. And a lot of times when we go through seasons of suffering, it's very hard to remain faithful and to remain full of joy when life hits us between the eyes. So this text compels us to ask a main question. How do we know that the Christian life is more uh, akin to a pilgrimage than it is to a vacation? How do we know that the Christian life is more like being a pilgrim on a journey to a foreign land versus being on an all-inclusive vacation? Well, the text answers this in two ways. Number one, we're on a very long road. The Christian life is long. It's challenging. But along that way, we also learn that we have a loving Savior that's with us through it all. So, let's see this long road in verses 1 through 4. Read with me again. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So as we come to these psalms, it's good to ask, what in the world is happening here? What is this psalm about? What's the context of which this was written? Well, this psalm is known uh, with a group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, meaning going up. These psalms were written uh, to encourage the Israelites as they were traveling to Jerusalem. They were written to encourage them as they were hitting the last leg of their journey. It was one last uphill push and they needed some encouragement. Why? Road trips are kind of fun. Why would you need encouragement? You're going to worship. What's so hard about this? Well, when this psalm was written, people would travel for weeks, up to a month, with their children, with their supplies, with them, with donkeys. And they were traveling over really extreme environmental conditions. Uh, during times of the year where they were traveling, it would have been brutally hot during the day, and then at night it would have been freezing cold. Just imagine trying to take your kids to the beach. You ever seen parents go to the beach with maybe one, two kids? They've got nine coolers and a giant buggy, and the dad's got everything on his back, and everybody's getting sunburned, the kids are having a blast, and the parents are like, Ooh, I wish we would have gone to the trampoline park instead of this one. Imagine that. But week after week after week, and then you finally get to the end, you look in the distance, you see the temple situated on top of a giant hill. What a brutal uphill push to finish. This is why verses 1 and 2 said, my eyes are on the hills, and I need absolute help. You can imagine. No sleep. It's not fun camping. 
It's not fun being sweaty and stinky and messy and everybody's hangry and everybody's fussing at each other. This journey that these Israelites were on was, was more of a pilgrimage than it was a vacation. If you survey Israel during these trips, you'd say, hey, how's it going? You're having a blast? All right, let me hear it. I'm like, no, no, no. This is, this is kind of miserable. You can imagine some of these adults saying, this is really hard. I don't know if I really signed up for this. This is, this is more of a pain than it is worship. And for some of us today, that might be the theme of your week. It might be the theme of your month. It might be the theme of your summer, the last two or three years of your life. You may have had more seasons like this where you were just inundated with challenge. You're surrounded by brokenness. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a spouse, a loved one, your career, where you've come to the place where you think, how in the world am I going to make it out of this? And how in the world am I going to honor the Lord in the middle of this? I've been there. I've been those places where my back's against the wall, and I'm like, I don't feel very loving and kind like Jesus here. If you're here this morning, and this is the season that you're in, I'm going to give you some counterintuitive hope. It's not going to sound very hopeful on the surface, but if you're at that place where you wish you could snap your fingers like you're on vacation saying, my steak is overcooked, please give me another steak. If you're at that place where you wish you could snap out of it and everything be removed from you, the counterintuitive hope is that that's where God wants you to be. I know that might sound crazy, but God's got you right where he wants you to be. He tells us this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Paul writes this uh, phrase, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is shocking hope if you have a tourist vacation type faith. This is very shocking the tourist faith says if life is hard, it's because you're not doing something right. If you're going through a hard season, this is because uh, you're incompetent in some area. Therefore, you need to pray harder, study harder, work harder, do more, try harder. Go, 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 because God wants you to live a victorious life. God wants you to have your best day ever today. That's the tourism faith. The Bible teaches us instead that when we find ourselves where we feel like we're at the end of our rope, the Bible teaches us when we feel like we are in the complete bottom of the depths and we have no strength left that it's actually embracing our weakness is the channel where the streams of resurrected Holy Spirit power fills us up. And helps us not only to endure difficult seasons, but to make it out on the other side looking and smelling and acting more like Jesus. One of my favorite quotes is that God allows our situations to happen in our lives because he's more concerned about our holiness than he is about our happiness. And if you're here this morning and you think Christianity is this tourist vacation, you need to remember that God cares much more about you looking like Jesus at the end of this life, and he cares about you being happy. Because happiness is a very fleeting 
motion. Like verse 2 says, my help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. This is assuming something massive here. It's assuming something massive. It's begging the question, do you realize you need help? Do you realize you're not in control? Do you realize that God is the creator of all things, and you're not here by accident, but your whole life's goal is to enjoy the Lord and to glorify Him forever? So are you here realizing that you need this help? And this also assumes that the answer to the help that we need is found in God Himself. And this psalm is just galvanizing in us that God loves us. In the circumstances, even the most painful ones, where our prayers are just sighs and tears, these are being used to mold us and form us into the image of Jesus. William McRaven gave a speech to a graduating audience, uh, and he was sharing about his final weeks as uh, preparing to be a Navy SEAL. The Navy SEAL has this very famously week called Hell Week, and in this week it's six days of little to no sleep, where they're constantly being yelled at, where they're constantly running, swimming, jumping, up 24-7, and then towards the end of the week when everyone's delirious and they're seeing images, then they're uh, told to go into the Tijuana Flats. And what this is, is a mud pit of garbage and debris uh, and disgustingness, where water from the Tijuana City and San Diego converge into this freezing pile of mud, and at the end of their hell week, they're told to jump in that mud, and they stay in there for over eight hours. This is the final leg of the journey where the instructors are saying, if just two of you quit, everyone else can be free. If just one of you quit right now, you can come sit by this fire, drink this hot cocoa, and you can all make this go away. McRaven said they were in there and people were starting to give up. People's lips were turning blue. Their, their teeth were chattering. They, they were becoming hypothermic. And all of a sudden, he heard a little voice, a little head sticking out of the mud, starting to sing a song they had been taught in basic training. And through his chattering teeth and shivering body, horribly out of tune, singing like myself, he starts to hear this song and one voice turned into two. Two voices turned into three and four. And before they knew it, the entire mud squad was in this mud, singing and rejoicing. And then he says this, Suddenly the mud seemed a little warmer, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. You see, this is exactly what Israel was going through. They were tired. They wanted to give up. They wanted an easy way out. They wanted to check the box off of religious performance. But they stayed the course. They sang the songs. They encouraged one another. And they persevered and continued to Jerusalem's worship. They looked around at their brothers and sisters in the faith. And they mutually encouraged one another by sharing songs and prayers and worshiping together. And y'all, this is the power of the church. This happens today for us. We are all built up by that same spirit, and we lift each other up. We're really good at putting a smile on and putting lipstick on a pig and coming to church and acting like our whole life isn't full of mud and brokenness at times. 
where we come and people say, how are you doing today? And we hit them with, oh, man, things are great. Things are great. And inside you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make it next week. You see, if you're here this morning, you've got other people that are along the same journey that you are. We're all going through something. And the power of worship is to be able to come here to bring these burdens to Jesus and find the good news that not only has he died for you, but he's resurrected. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. And even if the tears drown out your ability to sing, you've got people around you that can sing with you and for you. And your tears are captured in their words before the throne. And somehow our hearts are reminded that we're not alone. I've been there. I've been through suffering. I've been sitting up front wondering, how are we ever going to make it through this adoption process? How are we going to make it through this infertility? Songs where I couldn't even imagine to sing, but they were so beautiful. But then I hear other people around me singing. And I was like, these are the people I need. This is my church family. You see, church, we need to worship with one another because we look around each other and we can encourage each other to say, today's not the day you give up. Jesus has a return. You're not in heaven. So don't give up. We're here with you. Israel's story is our story. The same songs that encouraged them as we traveling encourage us. And we need to be okay with our Christian worldview saying that life can sometimes feel like we're living in a glimpse of hell. It's okay to look suffering in the face and say, this is miserable. This is not what God intended. This is sin. This is evil. And it's okay to weep for that brokenness. It's okay to come to God and say, help. I don't know what to do or how to survive, or what you're doing in the midst of this, but help. We're reminded when we're weak, we're strong. And we've got verses 3 and 4 screaming at us from the Holy Spirit saying, God doesn't sleep. He's not off the clock. Regardless of where you feel He is in that moment, He is with you always. Your faith unites you to Jesus. His Spirit dwells in you richly. And just because you can't see His hand of providence in the moment, we remember His grace as we look backwards as He's been with us the whole way. So take it one day at a time, y'all. I'm telling myself this as much as I am you all. Take it one day at a time. And whatever you're going through, I promise, in faith, you're going to come out of it maybe bruised and beat up, some more gray hair, you might lose some hair. But as you move through trials and tribulation and pain and stress, clinging to Jesus at the other end of that, you'll be remarkably shocked to see how much more you're like him than you were before. So we ask, how is the Christian life like one of a pilgrimage instead of a vacation where we're a tourist? Well, we saw through verses 1 through 4 that we are on a long and challenging journey. But the second part of this is we see that we have a loving Savior. God didn't set all this into motion and say, all right, you're on your own, folks. He says, I'm with you. Look at verses 5 through 8 with me. It says, the Lord is your keeper. 
The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, there's a subtlety in verse 5, and I want to see if you pick that up. Did you see in verse 5 how Israel was singing that the Lord was their helper, that he was their shade, keeping them from evil? There's a subtle uh, cry and longing for God's help here. What would happen uh, is that as they were traveling to Jerusalem, as they were heading up through the hills, as they were getting into more mountainous terrain, they would look around the hills and they would start to see that I still got a long way to go. I'm exhausted. And I'd love an easy way out of this. Now, the counterfeit gods, particularly those that worship Baal, Baal was a god of fertility, not only for families, but for agriculture. And these Baal worshippers would set up temples along the mountains, all the way to Jerusalem, and they would be luring the Israelites in. There would be um, uh, rituals of physical nature for the children that are in here. Uh, We'll see this text in just a moment, but up in the hills, it was like, man, that looks way better than what I'm currently doing, because I'm not doing any of that stuff when I get to Jerusalem. And so they're walking, they're tired, they're delirious, and they could go and make a sacrifice to Baal, this fertility god that promised them life and beauty and growth. They could have checked the box and head back home, and no one else would have known that they would have done that. Here's what Jeremiah 3.23 says about this. Now, I'm reading the NIV version, but I've also there's a Hebrew word in there that describes what was happening on the hills. It's translated in various ways, but when we combine both really good translations, it helps us paint a big picture. It says, surely the idolatrous commotion, the ESV translates it as orgies, on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord, our God is the salvation of Israel. Now... You don't have to let your imagination run wild to see the type of evil that was taking places there in the hills. This was why this was why the psalm was written in part. Israel needed to be reminded that that's a false god, that that's false worship, that is pure evil. And although it might look really attractive, everybody's having fun, they're eating and drinking and being merry, that that's not our destination. Our destination is to stay on that narrow road to the Lord. And when you are in these times of trouble and distress, you need to remember that God is with you. Now, for modern Christians today, it's easy to look back and think, man, that's kind of silly to be tempted by that. Like, Baal was obviously false. Like, he's not a real God. The Canaanites were uh, synonymous with, like, horrendous evil. There's no way that I would have fallen for some of that. But one of the things that we pick from this text is that we should never be surprised by the nature of sin. You should be surprised by grace, but never be surprised by sin. Because when life gets really hard, when you feel like your back's against the wall and there's no way out, when you feel like you can't make it another day because you were so exhausted and you've given so much, it's very easy when the right time and opportunity and temptation meet you, how easy it is to fall in, to have an easy way out. 
the surface is very attractive. Sin on the surface looks like a whole lot of fun, and if sin wasn't attractive, we wouldn't fall into it. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I was learning how to deer hunt, and I would sit in a deer stand with all the older men, and so each stand would have like one or two people, and so the old guys would take the young guys and teach them how to, you know, like listen and all that good stuff for deer hunting. However, uh, during that time, one of the worst things that could ruin your hunt, particularly for somebody like me, is if a yellow jacket or a hornet came in your deer stand, and that was really bad, particularly if there's a deer in front of you where you can't make any noise and you can't make any commotion. I go into fight or flight immediately. I'm throwing hooks and jabs, and I might scream at me. The worst thing you can do is that because it's going to ruin your hunt, ruin the hunt for everybody else, and I'm going to take a deer hunt again. So, whenever we got to the deer stand, I noticed that they would drink a Pepsi or Mountain Dew, and they would leave some at the bottom of the bottle. And we would sit there, and inevitably, particularly once deer season starts in the south, it's still hot, bees come in, and I'm like, oh, no. Just sitting here terrified. Old men just sitting there hanging out. They wouldn't bat an eye at it. What they would do is when a bee would come in the deer stand, they'd take the top off of the bottle, they would set it somewhere in proximity towards the bee and just hang out and sit back and relax. That bee would inevitably, within moments, fly into that bottle, start drinking that Pepsi or Mountain Dew, they would put the cap on it. That bee had no idea that he only had a few moments of oxygen left, but he was enjoying the mess out of that Pepsi. What's the intent of that bottle? It was the allurement to trap and suffocate and kill that bee. And the thing is, if you were to swat and naturally try to fight a bee, what happens is that they release um, this pheromone that alerts other bees that there's danger around them. So that's why you smash one and kill it, that pheromone happens, and then you start to see five or six more bees. The worst thing to do is to cause a commotion. So you trap one of them, you don't alert the rest of the hive and then you're good. Think about how Satan works with us. Satan's best work is when he carves one of us off from the rest of the church. Satan works best when you're away from gospel community. Satan works best when you think you're a lone ranger Christianity that you can make it on your own because an isolation is where he deteriorates us the most. And this is what Satan does, church. He paints himself as an angel of light. He presents temptation as something that's beautiful and fun. But once you get a taste of that sin, once you hit your lips, it's just so good, right? Once it hits your lips, it's hard to go back off the on-ramp and to back out from that sin. Once you start toying with it, you start to realize you're in over your head and you're trapped. So, Paul speaks of his subtleness in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. He says, But I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, church, what I'm saying is nothing new for how Satan works. His temptations are still the same. Get what you want when you want it. If you're suffering, this is your fault. Take the easy way out. You're worshiping the wrong God. Let me show you a better way. Well, we see this working very practically. Let's take some examples. Uh, imagine you're in a work setting and things just aren't going your way. The project's falling apart. People aren't pulling their weight. Instead of having 
loving, engaging conversations to motivate people, you start to raise your voice just a tinge. And you start to notice when I get loud, people, oh, 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 wow, okay, okay. And so you get a tinge just, it hits your lips. It, you just feel that, that anger makes people jump. And everybody around is like, okay, we better, we better straighten up or such and such is going to get mad at us. And what that starts to happen over time is when things don't go your way, you start giving into that anger and that fear, that things failing. So I'm just going to get louder and louder and louder. So after years, nobody confronting you about it, everyone walks on eggshells because they're terrified of what you look like when you don't get your way. It happens. It gets there easy and it's subtle and it creeps up on you. And you're like, I don't even recognize who I am anymore. It's in those times where we feel like things are so hard, there's no way out, or, or we fall into these temptations. Think about those times with David and Bathsheba in the Bible. Think about David just gazing a little too long at Bathsheba, then all of a sudden he was like that bee in the mountain dew. He fell in, suffocated, and to back his way out of that, he has her husband killed after this affair. I bet you if I surveyed this room, there would be the majority of us whose lives have been touched by somebody seeing some sort of fantasy spouse where they've left their entire families to go chase after a fantasy and destroy everything around them. I've seen it happen. We shouldn't be surprised by sin. We shouldn't be surprised by temptation. We should be surprised by God's grace, that He knows us. He knows what it's like to be tempted yet without sin. He strengthens us in the middle of that. You see, when we get to a place of, I don't see a way out of this. When we get to places of rock and a hard place, if how we view the Bible is that of a tourist, like I've just got to try harder, do more, then we're just going to do anything we can to survive. And it's in those moments where we're bound to fall. You see, this is why God's word is so important. This is why Psalm 21 is so important for us, because it reminds us that we are pilgrims heading to another land, that this home isn't our eternal resting place, that this life is going to be full of challenges. There's going to be things, even today, as soon as you leave here, that's going to be vying for your attention, vying for your worship, vying for you to, to come and find eternal satisfaction in fool's gold. Satan knows that God's working a tapestry of which we're all a part of, where we all have our little squares where we can't see the big picture of what God's doing, so Satan wants to isolate us and to take each square at a time and completely destroy the church from the inside out. We need to remember that God's working out the big picture even though we can't see exactly what he's doing every single day. We can't see the tapestry because God knows that we couldn't handle everything that he's doing, even if he told us. But this text reminds us that we're called to live by faith, not by sight. And as you're going through pain, remember that God is living and active. He's with you. He's got you secure, even when you feel like you can't see him working. This reminds me of hummingbirds. All right, get older. Older people like birds, start to figure that out, all right? 
you know that a hummingbird, their wings flap at 50 beats per second? So, this comes into play as if you've ever watched a hummingbird hover, their wings flap back and forth, but with the human eye, unless we really slow it down, we can't see those wings flapping so fast. And I want you to think about that God-created paradox here. They are still, and they're very active at the exact same time. You see, hummingbirds are a metaphor for the kind of trust that's outlined in our text. That's directly spoken of in Isaiah 30, 15. It says, In returning and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Do you see the paradox of our faith here? Our strength doesn't come in good or bad times by just doing more and trying harder, believing harder, believing more, 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 more. Like a hamster on a wheel. That's not where our strength comes from. But we're strong when we realize that we're needy. That we're not in control. That God is our Savior and... In the quiet trust of our Father is where our hope is found. You see, like the hummingbird, God is moving in ways that often seems invisible to us. It's hard to see God moving in the moments of the pain, but something remarkable is always happening with God. The end of our story is one that is one of rejoicing and hope and majesty. That's why our text ends with God keeping us forevermore. You see, it's even at the cross. The intersection of our faith is at the cross, where God seemed to be very absent. It looked like Jesus was not the Messiah, that the religious rulers had won, that, that the King of Kings was actually dead before their eyes. But in the stillness and the brokenness and the misery of the cross, God was doing something more profound than we could ever imagine. He was taking the wrath for our sins. He was applying his obedience to all of us who would have faith. He was uniting us to himself by letting Jesus bear the guilt and punishment for our sin. So as the passerbyers were looking, it looked like God was giving up on Jesus and that he wasn't the Messiah, but Jesus rose to life. And in the stillness of the cross, we find that we're forgiven, that our debt has been paid, that for those of us who would trust in Jesus, even in the midst of tremendous hardship, you've got a Savior that says, I know you, I created you, I'm with you, and I've died and conquered everything that you're experiencing today. Church, that's where our hope is. Just because you're in pain right now and feel like you can't see God doesn't mean God's given up on you. Tim Keller says, sometimes the pain that we experience is the hammer that nails us to Jesus. Because of this, remember, this world is not your home. We were created for something greater and we're going there. For some of us, it's going to be a long time. For others of you, you might be closer to meeting Jesus than you realize. But you're not a tourist. 
This isn't a vacation, but God promises to be with you every step of the way. He's not off the clock. He's guarding you and he's keeping you right now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, life is oftentimes so hard. It's like the ocean of pain with islands of happiness. And yet sometimes we try to create islands of happiness with small oceans of pain. Lord, would you help us to be Christians who have a worldview that allows us to not run from pain and suffering, not run from the brokenness of this world, that we not try to um, create some crafty theological loophole that uh, puts a positive spin on evil and suffering, but would we be able to say, this is not how God intended this. This is painful. This is hard. And would it drive us to clinging to you, not driving us to toxic positivity? May it not drive us to putting spins on people suffering when they come to us in tears. May we not be so superficial in our faith that we can't in one hand say things are miserable, but we have a miraculous Savior. Father, help us to know that you've entered into this broken journey, that you have lived it perfectly, that you have died and resurrected to bring us to new life, to help us to see that today is not the end of our story, and that our story ends with rejoicing with you as communion represents today. Would you prepare our hearts to celebrate? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.